0: Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Oh, oh, oh. closer, let me whisper in your ear. Say the words you long to hear. Listen. All right, good morning. I forgot to introduce myself earlier. If you're tuning in for the first time or if you're a first, second time guest here, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And it is wonderful to have all of us tuning in together. And I I don't say often enough. You know, we celebrate people when they leave, right? Like we throw parties for some strange reason, like you work with somebody and then they leave and then we tell them how wonderful they were. Like maybe if we had told them how wonderful they were, they wouldn't have ever left kind of thing. But we don't say that enough around here. Our team of volunteers and staff are great. But Katie Martinez, man, what an incredible leader and uh, just a privilege for us to have her wisdom and insight, credible writer, speaker, communicator, just a wonderful leader, it's great. When we were kinda coming out here and uh, just kinda trying to figure out where God was bringing us and guiding us, one of the big factors was to just know that I was gonna get to lead with Katie because she's just amazing. So we're very, very fortunate. If you're in the room, give Katie a big hand. Good. Was that right? Did I say that right? No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. So, listen, are you ready to have some fun today? We're going to have some fun. We're going to explore some topics. We're going to wrap up a series called, uh, called Listen. We're going to have communion. Uh, we're going to explore some wisdom from Scripture, learn how to become a better person to make the world a better place. It feels like a good investment of the next three hours of your life, right? So, <laughs> there's no football. You're okay. Relax. Everybody, relax. Uh, so, hey, uh, listen, we're, we started this series. And we're exploring what does it mean to honor the light in another person, that light of the world that lives inside of every person. I come with the belief that the Christ, that the image of God is teeming throughout the universe, that even the rocks will cry out right? That the, the God is present in all things and we are all created in the divine image. And, and one of the ways in which we can depolarize our world is learn to see people as made in the image of God, regardless of beliefs or structures or religion or race or gender or sexuality, any of those things. And so what does it mean to honor the light? in another person, right? We've been in this series for about four weeks, and we launched it with this proverb. We call it our anchor verse, which is just a passage of scripture that I just encourage everybody to memorize because it kind of is underneath all that we've talked about in this whole series. And Proverbs 18, 13 says, whoever answers before listening, theirs is folly and shame. So that's the idea. We're learning how to be good listeners like in kindergarten, right? We could all use a little bit of that. Let's face it, right? We've all lost our minds when it comes to listening to one another, right? We're all guilty. Is charged. Raise your hand up nice and high. If you're in the room, if you're at home, give me a nod. If you're out in the atrium, uh, let me know. Like, have you ever had somebody judge you, your actions, something about your life, and you've either said this or you've thought this? Hey, talk to me after you've walked a day in my shoes. Anybody ever thought that? Anybody ever said, anybody ever had that said to you? Like, be honest. Like, you don't have to raise your hand. I know you don't want to admit anything wrong with yourself in church. I would never ask you to do that. But, like, we would. Like, I've probably done it, right? I've, I've, made, I've passed judgment on people, and I've thought thoughts, and I've said things like telling them how they should be living their life or whatever it might be. And inside of their mind, they've said, hey, walk a mile in my shoes and then come back and talk to me. And that sentiment comes from this reality. I think in our world, when we look around, is that in our world, we have a shortage of empathy, really understanding what it's like to walk in a person's shoes, and we have an abundance of arrogance, right? A shortage of empathy and an abundance of arrogance that I know best for you, for me. And here's how this plays out, right? We're, if, ha, ha, let's just, can we just, I won't tell anybody, all right? So what stays during the life, what happens in the live cast stays in the live cast, all right? So this is our secret. If you're tuning in online, it's our secret. How many of y'all like to gossip? Just a little bit. Anybody? Come on, it's fun. Let's be honest, okay? Can we just, we can't ever heal if we don't I recognize we have an ailment, okay? We love to gossip. And we don't, you know, we we love to get together with those people. Because we call them safe people, right? This is safe, right? You're not going to judge. And and we get in and we start to have our conversations about people. And we do, we just, we, you know, people of faith are great at doing this at prayer request time, right? We should be praying for so-and-so. Because so-and-so says it, right? But we do this in our world. We gossip. We love to talk about what's going on. And we say things out of our arrogance, like... I can't imagine why they would say that. I would never do that. Right? We, we look at people's lives, we think about it, we go, if I had their money, if I had their family, if I had their job, oh, I would, oh, I would be, so if I were in their position, I'd be such a better leader. Like we, we do this. It flows out of our arrogance. We just assume it, right? And, and that's just what we do. It's kind of fun to explore and think, well, I can do it. And what we do is we deride our neighbor, right? We say, oh, I can't believe they would do such and such. If I had their kind of money, I'd never have that kind of debt. If I had, like, look at how screwed up their kids are. I would never, if I had, if I lived where they lived, if I, we, we say these things and we deride one another, Right? because we don't understand one another. Proverbs puts it this way. Proverbs 11, verse 12, this kind of book in the Old Testament that has all these like, wise sayings and things that generally apply if you're of the upper class in you know, ancient Israelite culture. Right? It says, whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. Right? It's really hard to say something in a derisive way, to say something in a negative way about somebody you really understand their circumstances. Right, It's really difficult to do that. When we understand, when we know what's going on, it's pretty easy to hold our tongue. But when we don't, we just wanna pass our judgment. And here's why we do that. We pass our judgment because we look and judge people through the rubric of our experiences, not theirs. And we don't know that we do this. We don't recognize, you. it's just called, it's called internal bias, right? We just think and we assume everybody has the same upbringings that we had, the same values we had. So I look at your life and I think, Well, they've grown up just like I had. They lived life just like me. They have the same values instilled in them just like I had. Their zip code was the same zip code as me. And we don't understand that like your experiences or the other's experiences are totally different. And so rather than judge people by my experiences, right, we ought to start to pause and say, how can we look at a person through the rubric of their experiences? What has happened in their life? Because that's what Jesus did. Could you imagine, for those of you that are familiar with Jesus, the person, maybe you've been around faith, you've studied his life a little bit, you know that Jesus didn't judge people through the rubric of his experience, right? Jesus didn't look at someone and say, oh, you know what? You should do X, Y, and Z because I'm this close to the Father. You should, why are you not, right? That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't say, well, I'm kind of fully divine and fully human, and why isn't everybody acting like me? Why did, no, Jesus interacted with people because he understood they had experiences, they had their own stories. And Jesus understood that reality so well that he could just exude love in ways that will, it's so hard for us to understand. There's one great story of this, an example in Jesus's life, where he just exudes this, like what we'll call empathy, right? And in, in the Gospel of Luke, if you're new to Bible study, I'm so, so glad you're with us today. Luke is a, a writing that's found in the Bible. The Bible is a collection of writings, uh, 66 actually, to be specific, that church leaders uh, early on in the history of Christianity said, these, these writings are unique, they're unique. And we, we hold these in a, in a sense of sacredness. And they put them together, and so we have them, and they were written over the course of a, of a very long time, probably a 1,000 years, you know, maybe give or take a few hundred, but this, this time period where they were actually written, they cover thousands of years. Um, and, and I tend to think of the Bible as three things when I come to it, that the Bible is uh, diverse. It's diverse. It's written by different people, different times, for different reasons, very diverse. Uh, the Bible's ambiguous, the Bible isn't as clear as we think it is, as we want it to be. If, if the Bible's so clear, if we could just say, "Well, the Bible says," and everything be all right, we wouldn't have like a thousand different Christian denominations. Okay, so there's some ambiguity in Scripture, uh, in these different writings, and the Bible is, is 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 ancient, meaning it comes from a time very different than ours. And when we bring those realities, it's just what it is, to how we interpret and look at scripture, the world can open up for us and we can see it as a book of wisdom that offers us opportunities to explore how do we be faithful to love? How do we be faithful to care of what God cares about in our day and our time? So if you're kind of afraid of the Bible because you came from an experience that maybe used it to control or manipulate, I hope that you won't find that here. I hope that you'll find us to be a group of people that we open up the Bible and we find in it freedom, we find in it joy, we find in it opportunities to explore how we all misunderstand God and how God reveals God's self perfectly in this person of Jesus. So we get this story in Luke, which is one of the gospels, these four gospels that tell the story of Jesus from different diverse perspectives. And it says in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, that a Pharisee invited Jesus to dine with him, and he entered into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, a Pharisee was a religious leader. You might think of the Pharisees uh, as a pastor, you know, or maybe a bishop, something like that. But we also should remember that Pharisees were a political party as well. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you've heard those two terms, they were kind of like the Republicans and the Democrats of their day. They had different ideas about how you should function as, as a nation under the kind of governance the oppression of rome so the pharisees were highly nationalistic the pharisees felt like we should they should re, re, kind of back away from and fight the Romanization of Israel, the Sadducees were far more uh, inclined to say, hey, listen, this is where we are, and let's figure out how to get along with the Romans and figure out how to work. So there were political differences. These were the leaders of the nation, uh, and there was no separation of church and state, so they also led, this was a theocracy, right? So they, they often, they led the people in terms of their faith. And so one of these Pharisees, which means this was a person who had wealth, they had power, Uh, they they had a lot to lose by some of the things that Jesus was talking about. He invited Jesus over for dinner and they're sitting at the table and it says, now there was a woman in this city, a sinful woman in the city who learned that he was at table and in the house of the Pharisee. So there's this woman that has a reputation. Everybody knows who she is. Right? You can imagine why they knew who she was. She was a prominent woman in this field and, and everybody knew her. She had her own like, oh, this woman is out there. Like, she is sinful, has no space in our religious culture. She is the bottom end of our culture. We don't, we don't want anybody to live like her, and look like her, she's a sinner, right? And that was based through the rubric of the law of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the temple. And so this woman finds out that Jesus is there And for some crazy reason, she thinks, I should go and crash this party. (laughs) So she shows up and she brings this alabaster flask of ointment and she stands behind him because remember Jesus at this time, there'd be a table, it'd be low and they'd all be reclined around the table. Jesus' feet would probably be behind him and he'd be sitting at the table. She comes up behind him and she is just weeping at his feet standing there. And she begins to bathe his feet with her tears. Her tears, just she's just weeping, she's just crying. And then... She starts to wipe his feet with her hair. And then she starts to kiss the feet. This is nasty. Nasty. This is gross. I mean, forget the fact that she had no business being there as a woman in this house, in the culture. She's already upended that. But then she comes and she sits down, this this woman who has been with many men, who has a reputation, she sits down, and she starts just crying on these dirty, dusty, dungy feet. Because Jesus wasn't wearing like really nice shoes, you know. I don't know if you were here for the, for the conversation earlier, if you were paying attention to Aisha, who was our host. Like she's wearing some, she's, her shoe game is top notch today. Like she's got the Adidas wedges going on. Like they're for real. I mean, if you want to know shoe game, you got to talk to Aisha. But I tell you, Jesus didn't have shoe game back then. Like, he's wearing sandals, open feet, dust everywhere, dung everywhere, covered on his feet. And this woman muddies all that up with her tears, then takes her nasty hair all over. Imagine what that did to her hair. And it wasn't like she was like, well, I'll just go take a shower, a nice warm shower. So she's got all this is muck and mud, and she's wiping it with her hair. And then she's like, oh, what have I done? And she starts kissing his feet. Like I was like, what is going on here? And Jesus is just like, well, this is fascinating. This is amazing. And then she starts like giving him a pedicure right there. She pulls out the ointment. She's massaging his feet. And Luke, the 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 gospel tells us that when the Pharisee who had invited him saw what was going on, he said to himself, and it was all over his face, right? <sighs> he says to himself, "If this man were a prophet." he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. He had it all figured out. It's as if this man were a prophet. And the irony is, Jesus is gonna show to him the fact that because he's a true prophet is why, and because he knows this woman, and because he knows what sort of woman she is, why he lets her touch him. That this is exactly what the prophet should be doing. And there's something interesting about this story that Jesus is going to reveal to us. And and I'm going to say this, and, and, and before you start writing me your email, hear me out, okay? Okay, just hear me out. And that is what we see here is that sinfulness is in the eye of the beholder. The way in which people, in this story in particular, Jesus and the Pharisee, whose name is Simon, we'll find out later... The way that Jesus and Simon see this woman and her sinfulness is all in the eye of the beholder, because Simon, as a Pharisee, saw her and understood sin as look at all the stuff that she has done, look at all the things that she has, that that are against our law. She's a person of terrible reputation. And so she is, because of her sin, cursed by God, her Latin life she deserves, and she's getting her just punishment. That would have been his framework for seeing and understanding sinfulness. But Jesus, as we're going to see, sees something very different. Jesus' framework for sinfulness is that this is a woman who's been wounded. This is a woman who's been wounded by evil. This is a woman who has been part of and been the product of an unmerciful system that has cast her out and set her aside And so these two men, they see sinfulness very differently. And so to help Simon understand, Jesus says to him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Simon says, well, tell me, teacher. He says, okay, here's the deal. A little story for you. Two people were in debt to a certain creditor. One owed 500 days wages, year and a half, 500 days wages. And the other owed 50. Simon's like, okay, I got it. Since they were unable to pay the debt, the creditor forgave both of them. Now, which of them will love him more, (laughs) right? Not a tough question, let's be honest. Simon says, well, I suppose the one whose larger debt was forgiven. Jesus says, that's right. You got it, Simon. You're with me. Way to go. And what Jesus is beginning to break down for Simon and what he wants Simon to understand here is that how you see yourself, Simon, is gonna affect how you see other people. How you see me, Simon, how you see Jesus, is gonna be affected by how you see yourself. How you see this woman is gonna be affected by how you see yourself. How you behave, how you love people is gonna be understood by how you see yourself, right? He's saying how people see themselves affects how they see others, how they behave towards others. So in this story, this person knows I owed a year and a half of wages. This person gave me much love is given. The other person, well, you know, I could have probably come back eventually. He says, No, Simon, I want you to understand this lesson. How you understand yourself is key to being able to interact and understand and behave towards other people. And then he turns to the woman, right? And he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? Now, this is the most, this is the key question of the whole thing. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about the power of questions. Right? So Jesus asked this question and at face value, like, this is a stupid question. Let's just be honest, right? Like, I mean, I know we're not supposed to say Jesus asked dumb questions, but if I'm there, right, and I'm a Pharisee, I'm like, well, that's a dumb question. I just watched her make a mess everywhere of your feet, embarrassing me, embarrassing you. Of course I see this woman. But what Jesus was getting at was you don't see her, Simon. You don't see her because you don't see yourself. You don't understand yourself. You don't see yourself as having received forgiveness and grace. You see yourself as having earned it and you have all this wealth and power that you think are the blessing of God. He's basically saying, Simon, you don't see this woman, you only see her sin. And you only see her sin in the lens by which you think about sin. But Jesus says, I see it all differently. He says, and here's what I mean, Simon. When I entered the room, When I entered your house, you didn't give me water for my feet, but she bathed them with her tears. She wiped them up with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but she's not stopped kissing my feet since the time I entered. You didn't didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. So I tell you, now this is the key. Her many sins have been forgiven. Jesus doesn't mince words. Jesus doesn't say you haven't done anything wrong. He says nothing wrong has ever happened. No, no, no. He just sees it completely differently. He says, Her sins are forgiven, hence, she has shown great love. See, he says, I can see by her actions that she knows that she's forgiven. But the one to whom little is forgiven, the person who thinks little is forgiven, they love little. Simon, this woman knows. She knows who, the way she sees herself is reflected in how she treats me. And the way you see yourself is reflected in how you treat me. And then I love what he says to the them. He looks right at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, a lot of times we read this, that like in that moment, Jesus is forgiving her sins because she's come. But, but I just, if you take the story at somewhat face value, like she never asks Jesus for forgiveness. She never professes Jesus as any kind of like savior or Lord. She doesn't, I would doubt she has any concept of that. I think she probably heard some of Jesus's teachings, saw the value that Jesus gave to the dispossessed, the marginalized, and she believed to be true of her that she was worthy of God's love and grace and that she was actually forgiven, just like these other sinners that Jesus hangs out with. see, I believe forgiven was the truth that she dared to choose And I've worded that kind of specifically because we use words like believe and faith and they've lost a bit of meaning. But I actually believe that this woman was able to come into this space that she was not invited, that she did not belong. And she came into that space with confidence because she dared to believe what was true about her she was loved and that she was forgiven. It was a statement of fact, not a statement of what is now because you've done this, but you are forgiven. And now you've made a choice to believe that and understand your worth and your value. It's quite fascinating that Jesus is walking around. We have this all the time in scripture. Jesus is telling people that their sins are forgiven. They've never asked for it. He hasn't died on a cross. He hasn't rose from the grave. None of that. But yet we say, oh, all these things are absolutely necessary for forgiveness. So I'm just pressing that presupposition a little bit for those of us that have been around for a long time. That Jesus is going around declaring forgiveness of sin because God understands. God understands us and loves us. And we live in that place of forgiveness. It's the kindness that brings us to repentance, which I think is the owning of, right? That I need forgiveness, that I need this wholeness. So when Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven, the others around the table, right? They look and they say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And this wasn't necessarily a statement of wonder. It was a statement of like, you gotta be kidding me. Who is this joker? But he looks at the woman and he says this, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> She's gotta wonder, like, what? Okay, what? My faith. Well, what what faith? What did I? What do I? What is it that she actually believes or holds true or sees without seeing? Right, faith. And what am I saved from? And I think it's fascinating that what I, I as I look at this and I really think about it and I try to erase some of the stuff that I hold so like dear from up. It's like Jesus is saying, "You have chosen to believe what is true of you that you are forgiven, and so you are now saved from this life of believing that you are not loved by God." you are saved from the wounds that happen to you there's healing you can replace the word saved with healing you are healed your faith has healed you from these wounds the wounds that you have created in this world and the wounds that have been hap- that have happened to you now go whole go whole i love that word peace you know i'm a peace guy i love that he says go in peace faith was her path to peace. That was what she dared to choose. What she dared to choose to believe true of her was this beautiful gospel that we are loved, we are forgiven, that God is kind, that God is gracious, that God is longing deep for relationship with us, wanting to combat the lie that we aren't made in God's image, that we aren't like God. No, no, no. I've come to show you this. And this empathy, right, that Jesus has for this woman, his ability to, to see her fully is because he understood her story. He understood that this woman was more than behavior. She had a story, right? She had all of these things that happened to her. She had all of these experiences. She was more than the sum total of the laws that the leaders thought that she broke. She was more than the gossip. She was more than the, the judgment. She was a whole person who had a story. And this is, I believe, what the gospel calls us to. Those of us who have been given this great privilege of daring to believe that we are loved by God, that we are whole, that we are forgiven, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to a place of healing and repentance. And that transforms us. It has deep implications for your everyday peacemaking life. So right now it's 1146. Never tell people what time it is in church, by the way. Never do it. You all just looked at your watch and like, oh man, he's going to go forever. I just lost you, all right? So hang with me, all right? Where will you be tomorrow at 1146? Probably the most, one of the most important questions you could answer when you're at church. Where will I be tomorrow? Because right now is about 1146 tomorrow. Like what, what, what God wants to do in your life and my life through our time here today is about tomorrow. It's about our everyday life. So at 1146 tomorrow, you're going to be engaged with people all around you, and we're going to be tempted to judge people through that rubric of our experiences. We're going to be tempted to sit as Simon, to know this woman, to know her story, to know that she's a sinner, and we're going to be called by the Spirit of God to something better. How do we do that? Well, I think we can do just, we can listen to the whole story. Learn to ask those questions like we talked about. Find out how people grew up. Find out what their life was like. Tell me about your mom. Tell me about your dad. Do you have brothers and sisters? Did you go on vacation as a kid? Where did you go on vacation as a kid? What was kind of the favorite thing your family did? What was the hardest thing growing up? Where did you go to school? What did you study? What did you learn about God? All of these things factor in. What was the hardest thing you've ever been through? What was the meanest thing anybody's ever said to you? What are the things that you still have a hard time dealing with? Now, that's probably not the first set of conversation questions at coffee with the new, you know, co-worker. Tell me your deepest darkest fear and like what. But we engage, we get to know the whole story. And when we know the whole story, I think we can start to see emerge a really more powerful, helpful view of sin. That's not the judgmental, like you did this, you did this, and now I, as a, a religious leader, I get to tell you what you need to do so that you can be good with God and everything is good. No, we can recognize that sin is wounding. Sin is woundedness. It's far bigger than the, than the, the moralisms. Not, that's not to say that morality is not important, but, it's, but sin is far, far bigger. Paul talks about sin being this thing at work in the world that holds power and oppresses it's this, and I think we can reduce it to this big lie that we're not loved by God. Reduce it to this big lie that we're not, but we have to earn it somehow. And in that woundedness, we wound others. So when we start to hear stories, oh man, if we will listen, we can start to do something pretty cool. We can start to hate the wound, but love the wounded. Because let me talk to my like church folk. You're like me. Like you're for... As long as you can remember, you've been a part of a community of faith, a church, right? Like I was, my dad was a pastor. I'm second generation in this line of work. Like my whole life was just in a church, right? So I'm a, I'm a churchman, right? Have you ever heard this statement? Hate the sin, love the sinner. Anybody ever heard that? Raise your hand say, I hate the sin, love the sinner. Okay, let me tell you something right now. I hate that statement with a passion. I hate it, it I, because it sounds so good It feels right, but here's all it does is produce judgmental spirituality. Because we think that somehow we can then judge, oh, this is sin, this isn't sin. We can somehow parse that out. And we still ascribe like hate the sin. We think about it as, well, hate what that person has done without any understanding of why they've done it, without any understanding of what's going on in their life. And we can't do it, it just creates this big old line. And so I I just, I I have written in deliver entire sermons on that, why that's such a bad idea. But, but what I think is powerful is we say, well, I hate the wound, but I love the wounded. I hate what wounds do to people. I hate what fear can do. I hate what greed can do. I hate what lust can do. Because wounded people wound people. This is the perpetu- perpetuity of sin in our world. It just flows. And until we break that cycle with forgiveness, healing of the wound by the only one who can heal us, which is our creator, we just continue on down this road. But when we say, oh, I got to hate the wound, but I will love the wounded. I have, that will bring me to a space of understanding because I'm not defining a person by their moral decisions. The sinner, hate the sin, love the It's such a pejorative term, sinner, as if you're not, give me a break, as if I'm not. And when we do that, then we can focus our eyes on their shoes, right? That's what we wanna do. We can say, oh, I can focus the journey that they've been on. I can focus my eyes on those shoes, that journey. I wonder if like the woman was focused on Jesus's feet because of Jesus's journey, the feet that brought good news. I wonder, I don't know. But do we, can we then focus on people's journey, their story, their feet? And Jesus does this beautifully over and over again, but no place else is it so huge than when Jesus is hanging on the cross. So Jesus goes through this mockery of a trial. He's accused of treason. He's tried as a criminal of the state, accused of mounting an insurrection, king of the Jews. There's only one king, Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And as he hangs there, Romans and and Israelites and non-Israelites all watching this, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's knowing somebody's story. This Jesus who is the recipient of the violence is offering forgiveness because he knows their story. He knows the fear that's driving them. He knows the wound and he came to fight the wound and he came to expose the wound for the lie that it was, but the wound is persistent. That's powerful. That's understanding the impact that trauma has in a person's life. And so Jesus seemed to me to practice trauma-informed spiritual care. If you're familiar with this emergence that's happened over the past two decades of care that is trauma-informed, that moves us from a fundamental question of what's wrong with me, or if I'm the caregiver to think, well, what's wrong with this person? I need to fix that. I need to understand it, to a, a more formative question, more redemptive question of what happened to me? What happened to you? Because once we do that, once we dig into what has come in, it bring this assumption that God has made us. We're all beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully made. But then wounds happen. Sin happens. It persists. And that leads to more wounding. And so i got to break that cycle. And when we start to ask those kinds of questions, when we start to dig in, when we start to really listen, we will make the world a better place because we will learn and experience and give the healing power of solidarity. Right, to stand in solidarity with someone like Jesus with this woman who understood her, exuded empathy, who knew that she was oppressed by a system that was unmerciful, a system that didn't take into account all the things that happened to her, a system that was very anti-God because God understands everything that's happened to us. That's why God can love us so perfectly. And when Jesus comes and he stands in solidarity with her, right, he helps to, uh, to, to re- ease the weight of oppression, which is the same thing we do. When we stand in solidarity with people that are different than us and we hear their story and we have empathy for them, we stand with them, we ease the burden of oppression. And the great oppressor, this this great theme that we have all throughout scripture, the great oppressor is sin and death. It's the wounds and the wounding. And Jesus came as one who knew no sin and stood in complete solidarity with all of us who did. All the wounds that we've created. Uh, Pope John Paul II wrote a, uh, a, an article, right, or a catechism, which if you're the fancy word catechism blog post, right? It, and he wrote this beautiful uh, catechism called Jesus, a man in solidarity with all humanity, all humanity. And I'm going to do something you should never do in a talk like this. I'm going to read a, a big chunk out of it and bore you to death, okay? So just hang in there with me, all right? Read along, just, we'll go slow, just pause you because it's so beautiful because it shows us this was the very heart of Jesus. This is the gospel, to be in solidarity with one another, to understand, which then allows us to love even when we don't agree with what people have done or believe, but we can understand it and have the empathy. So this is what Pope John Paul II wrote. He said, Jesus worked in the spirit of a great love for every human person. In other words, what motivated Jesus was this intense love for everybody. Everybody. And he did this on the basis of the profound solidarity which he had for those created in the image and likeness of God. Every person created in the image of likeness of God, so that was the motivation. So what does this solidarity consist? Of what? Like what's the big heartbeat of it? It's the manifestation of the love which has its source in God himself. Right, the, the, the manifestation, the visible expression of ultimate perfect love is this act of solidarity by Jesus to come alongside those of us made in the image of God. He writes, the Son of God came into the world to reveal this love, to show this love. This is what it means to love. And he already revealed it by the fact that he himself became man, one of us. So the very taking on of flesh, right, why the manger is so powerful is because that is the ultimate greatest expression and manifestation of love, that God would stand in solidarity with those of us who wound, that God would experience the wounding that we experience. This union with us on the part of Jesus Christ, true man, is the fundamental expression of his solidarity with every human person. It speaks eloquently of the love with which God himself has loved each and every person. Each and every person, regardless of politics, gender, age, race, zip code, religion, sexuality, anything that we could use to divide humanity, this love unites it. This love brings together and starts to heal all those wounds. Jesus is the man, a true man, who like us in all things but sin. Think of it like this, who like us in all things but never wounded anyone, never wounded anyone, became a victim for sin, became a victim of those wounds and entered into solidarity with all, even to death on a cross. That's how much of a victim he became to show us we can break this. And it's done through forgiving one another and transforming us. It transforms us. So we've gone through four weeks of listening. We live in a climate that is so hard to bring human dignity to a person who could believe and say and do things that we couldn't imagine how. But yet the cross we bear if we're following Jesus is to give what Jesus gave, this kind of love, this kind of empathy, this kind of understanding. So as we get ready to have communion together, what is it that God is inviting you into today? Maybe it's something that's stuck with you over the past few weeks. Maybe it was something in a song that just hit your heart and you just feel God inviting you into some experience. I would hope that all of us know that God is inviting each and every one of us all over the planet to live in the truth that we're forgiven and that our lives would then reflect that truth just like this woman. So maybe you're here today and you've been coming for a while, a long time, maybe this is your first time, whatever, and you're wondering, what is it all about? Well, I think ultimately this idea and this this big concept of faith in Christianity is about choosing to believe what is true about you by the grace of God, that you are loved, that you are whole, that you are forgiven, that you are a wreck, that you wound people and you have been wounded, and the Creator of the universe, that which is love, is flowing through you, wanting to begin a healing process and has called you and is calling you into becoming a healer of this world. We call it peacemaking. That's the invitation so maybe for the first time you just need to surrender to that truth as hard as it is to believe that you are forgiven that you are loved and allow it to transform you and shape you allow love to flow through you maybe for all of us We're being invited at this moment in time with communion to take the bread and the juice, to drink it, to eat it as a reminder of our commitment to stand in solidarity with those that have been wounded by sin just as Jesus stood in solidarity with us. Because we were wounded by sin. So as you came in, you probably saw these little uh, communion to go (laughs) uh, containers. If you didn't, I think we have a few of our hospitality folks that have a basket and they'll bring one by if you want to slip up your hand. Everybody's invited, by the way. This is not our table. This is the table of Jesus, uh, and and I am not in charge of the guest list. (laughs) No thank you. We're all invited. These are symbols. They represent the body of Christ that was given to every person as a reminder of the call to forgiveness, to nonviolence, to love. The juice is a symbol of the blood of Jesus that was shed in his resistance of the temptation to wound, to lash out at those who would want to continue to perpetrate evil. He just absorbed it and released it as love. That's what it means to carry our cross. And this is an invitation to remember that. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have a song for us to just contemplate this idea of God's invitation. And, uh, and then we'll have communion together. So during this song, I'd encourage you to open and pull the bread out. Pull the bread out first um, and then flip it over and you can open up for the juice. And then I'll come back out after this song and we'll pray together. And we'll take these as a reminder of God's love for all of humanity.